We started this journey with just a dream. I have a dream. A dream to bring inspiring stories from across Africa to life. As we mark our milestone with our 100 episodes, we look back at the laughter. Do you have $500? I think you need to rethink your strategy accordingly, you know. The fun. This man had started to read <laughs> off of a blank piece of paper the tears i can't wait to get a job to be happy but most importantly the inspiring and uplifting stories people not liking you it's not on you my first casting was for christian dior from legally clueless we want to say thank you for sharing and thank you for listening a hundred episodes of legally clueless hello and welcome to the a hundredth legally clueless episode what We actually made it. I am so, so excited. And I'm also just so grateful. First, thankful for myself for showing up for myself every single week. And then thankful to you for listening to this podcast, for being part of the tribe, for sharing this podcast with your friends and enemies. (laughs) I really do appreciate it. And I'm just so proud and I'm just so happy. So obviously, the 100th episode has got to be special. And as I told you in the last episode, we produce such a beautiful visual show for you. It's a special edition show. We never have storytellers live in front of a camera. But for the 100th episode, we got some of your favorite storytellers in front of the camera to share their stories again. Stories like flipping a coin to decide whether you will live or die. Mm -hmm. Bobby is in the production. Stories about new beginnings, about finding love after a divorce, starting a successful business. Samantha, aka Jerry's story, she's also in the visual production. And one that is quite a few people's favorite. (laughs) Kadzo's story about buying him curtains, what, 75,000 Kenya shillings is in the visual show. All you have to do is in the description of this episode, there's a link to my YouTube channel. Head over there now, subscribe, turn on your notifications. In case you listen to this late, you might already find the video up, but in case you listen to this early, turn on the post notifications so that as soon as that show goes live, You are amongst the first to watch it. We poured our hearts, our souls, our blood, our sweat, our creativity into that show. And I would just really appreciate if you watch it. All right. As you're gearing up to watch that, in this audio episode, there will be not one, not two, not three, but four (laughs) stories shared. And I was actually told by quite a few people around me who I go to for advice that I had not shared a story on the podcast. As much as I give you tidbits about my life, I had not shared a complete entire story. And so one of those four stories that's coming up is mine. But let's take it to the very beginning. 18th March 2019 is when I put out episode one. It's eight minutes of a very shaky voice. (laughs) And at the time, I thought eight minutes was so long. I was just like, this is such a long episode. (laughs) And now our episodes sometimes even go to like 60 minutes. (laughs) And you know, before I hit record for that first episode, I had cried so much. I was so petrified. I was so confused. I was so, I was so scared. 
I I didn't know what I was doing, but I still don't. <laughs> but then I really, really didn't know what I was doing. I've never gone back to episode one. In fact, when people tell me, oh, I've just discovered your, your podcast and I'm listening to episode one or I've just listened to episode one, I really cringe because I'm like, oh my God, couldn't you just start at like episode 10? <laughs> I've never gone back to listen to episode one until today. And when I listened to it, I realized my voice in my head, I thought my voice was much shakier, even though it is shaky. I thought it was like shaky, shaky. And there's so many things that I said in that episode that are still truth for me right now. So... Here's a snippet from episode one, those eight minutes that I thought were so long when they really weren't. Thank you for being part of this amazing journey. A hundred episodes. We, we are just, just getting, getting started, started on Legally Clueless. I am a Kenyan woman who has been on radio for the past nine years. And, you know, on the outside looking in, Radio kind of looks like one of those glamorous jobs that everybody would want. I think sometimes people forget that you have to deal with a lot of shit that comes with the job. You have to deal with being seen as a number and not an actual human being with feelings, emotions and bad days and good days and dealing with like personal stuff. No, you're just the number of listeners you bring into this station. I got to the point where I developed anxiety, I think, because of the setting that I was in, where I'd get very anxious and question whether that was a good show I gave, whether that was a stupid question that I asked, have I prepped hard enough, am I on top of things, am I enough? And as I sat down thinking about it, having bought my podcast equipment without really knowing even what the hell I was going to use it for, having transformed the extra room in my apartment <laughs> um, into like a makeshift studio. Even with all of that, I'm still winging it. And you know what? That's perfectly okay. Thank you for being part of this amazing journey. A hundred episodes. We, we are just, just getting, getting started, started on Legally Clueless. Now, we have gone from those eight minutes of being petrified slightly shaky voice, thinking eight minutes is such a long podcast episode, to achieving so much together on this podcast. I mean, the podcast has traveled to over five countries and more. We have over one million online streams. We're going to go through some of the milestones that the podcast has achieved throughout this episode, but I want us to get into the first story, and it is... Uh, it took me a long time to be able to figure out what story to share in this 100th episode. Not because my life is one long movie just full of like thousands of stories, but I wanted you to really understand why I'm so grateful for this podcast, so proud of myself and so thankful to you. So I hope you enjoy the first story that happens to be my story in this 100th episode. 100 episodes of fun, laughter, tears, and inspiration. We are just getting started on Legally Clueless. So I was one of those people who'd always wanted to turn 30, whilst everyone painted such a grim picture of what the third floor brings with remarks like, oh, your face is so flawless, wait until you turn 30. Or you can party two nights back to back. Wait until you turn 30. And I think my 20s were so drenched in confusion. 
I figured that, yes, the third floor would bring pimples, exhaustion, but surely it must come with clarity, stability, and the ability to just make better decisions, maybe even to be able to stand up for myself. I thought these things would be handed to me by a doorman on the third floor. So a bit of a backstory. I've never really fitted in. In primary school, I started growing taller, faster than most of my classmates. And also, my mom was so into healthy food, so when everyone had those swanky processed juices in the little boxes, I had either yogurt or fresh passion juice. When the other kids had packs of crisps or masala sticks, I had boring sandwiches, fruits, and the only snack my mom allowed us to have on special occasions, special being closing day, was homemade popcorn. I was different, and different wasn't socially acceptable. In high school, well, what's equivalent to Form 1 to Form 4? I was in Botswana. My parents were going through a messy divorce, and to ease things for my mom, it was agreed that I would go live with my aunt there. First, I was a week late for school, so everyone had their clique set up, everyone knew each other, either from being together in primary school or, well, Gaberun has very few people in comparison to Nairobi, so literally everyone knew each other. So once again, I'm an outsider because I'm not from this country. I'm related to a teacher, which in school code automatically makes you a snitch. And I do not speak the language, which surprisingly was a very big issue. Luckily for me though, I formed my own clique with fellow outsiders, girls who were not from that country, who didn't speak the language either, and who in one way or another were outsiders too. While in high school, I found out that I love poetry, which you can imagine at age 13 is far from cool. Who would rather sit for hours writing about nature or my mom instead of checking out the hot guy in school at that age? Me. I was different, and different wasn't socially acceptable. I came back to Kenya when I was 15 and joined St. Mary's for my IB. Now, because of my shift from 844 in primary school to IGCSE in high school, I'd done three years of high school in total. So when I joined Saints, I was with people three years older than me. I joined when I was 15 turning 16, and some of my classmates were 18, so they were able to drive to school. I also hadn't experienced the typical, very problematic high school boarding. Most people bonded over extreme punishments that they survived. And it's so weird that I sometimes wished I had a story to contribute to that, but I didn't. Most people were discovering the party scene and alcohol. And I, for some time before I discovered Black Ice, <laughs> would go to the club and order Lucozade. I still loved words and poetry, which was still not as mainstream as I'd hoped it would be. Okay, backstory done, let's get back to my 20s. I don't remember what I did for my 20th birthday, but I do remember it was about the time I got into radio, 1FM. I think part of me was surprised that I got the job because I didn't really fit into what um, the image of female media personalities looked like at the time. They seemed to fit in better with everyone's definition of beauty, and they were loud and very opinionated, and I didn't and still don't have an opinion on many topics because I really don't care who should pay for bills in a relationship or what whichever trending socialite should do differently. But it was a job. 
an exciting one, full of music, celebrities, I could wear whatever I wanted to work. And most importantly, I didn't have to wake up early because my show started at 3 p.m. Perfect. I remember once the station management had figured the shows on the station, they organized a photo shoot for all the personalities. This was probably my first official photo shoot, so I was excited. Plus, the pictures would be on billboards. I could just imagine my mom driving past one of them, thinking, look at my baby girl. So I was very excited about it. The shoot was on a Saturday morning and we'd already given our measurements to one of the coordinators. So there was a stylist who would sort out all our looks. It was a professional shoot. When I got to the office, the clothes were laid out in the boardroom and I spotted some really cool hoodies from a top Kenyan brand at the moment. And I jumped towards them very excitedly. The stylist quickly told me that those were for the men and that our clothes were on the other side of the table. So we walked around to them and she pulled up a pair of black tights. And I thought, okay, okay, this is good. Until she shoved her hand down one side of the tights and excitedly showed me the multiple ribs on the side of the tights. She then showed me the top I was to wear with those tights and it had even more ribs. My excitement just evaporated because first, I never showed my legs or hands at the time because of the scars that life had really painfully gifted me. And secondly, Atiyamuna billboard in ripped clothes while living in my mother's house. Surely there are easier ways to be homeless. So I refused to wear those clothes. I can't really remember what outfits I ended up wearing, but I do know <laughs> I never ended up on the billboards. I think I low-key decided it was probably because I wasn't the attractive female personality that I saw all around the industry at the time. And I think I decided that was the truth. And I went back to my, well, I never fitted anyway. Why should it be any different now? Until I turned 25, I was one of those people whose relationships just spilled over into the next one. We're not cheats. We just move on really quickly. <laughs> And at the beginning of each relationship, a part of me didn't believe that this man could be attracted to me. I didn't fit into what was defined on the outside in as beautiful. I didn't fit into what was defined as fun. Again, Saturday nights reading poetry versus Saturday nights at Q's or Midas. And for a while, I really did try to fit in. I partied hard, recklessly sometimes, but I was trying to fit in. What I didn't realize was that my identity was already formed and the harder I tried to suppress it, the more it sipped out. Then came Kiss FM. I was working alongside people I grew up listening to or hearing about. People who were definitely louder than me, they had opinions on everything and they were definitely more glammed up than me. It's a good thing they poached me because in the moments where I felt like I didn't belong or I thought I didn't bring anything to the table, I held on to that, that they poached me. I held on to it until I believed I belonged there. So I started giving ideas, creating shows, leaving my mark. I lost myself willingly in my work. And I loved that while I was doing my mid-morning show, I didn't have to fake a damn thing. I could, for five hours, allow my listeners to get lost with me in good music and in positive vibes. And I loved it so much that I wouldn't leave the studio for the entire five hours. And then I got moved to the breakfast show <laughs> amidst very weird blog headlines that I had stolen the show from the previous host. 
which was so strange to me because I wasn't given a choice about moving and how can I steal what neither of us owned? The Breakfast Show killed my love for traditional radio. And in hindsight, I'm happy that it did. The model for most shows of that nature is to chase what's hot, trending, and shocking. Slowly, I realized again that I didn't fit into that. I genuinely didn't care who had done what, with who. Although many times I had to fake interest, I had to fake outrage. I faked it until I couldn't fake it anymore. And I couldn't recognize the person that the show had made me. I was so sad all the time. I was having anxiety and panic attacks often. And on the outside, it seemed like I was fitting in just fine, but on the inside, I didn't belong in that space. So on December 27th, 2018, right before I turned 30, I handed in my resignation. That morning I told myself, if I get to work and the head of the station and the head of radio were both at work, then it was a sign from the universe to hand it in because it was the 27th. During the holidays, most of the office is not there. It's usually like a ghost town. So I got to work and not only were both of them there, but the CEO too. So clearly the universe was screaming at me. One of my supervisors was so shocked when I gave him my resignation. He kept asking me what I intended to do. And I told him, well, I could do anything. I could even enroll in medicine school if I wanted. On my last day at that job, I slept the most deepest, most peaceful sleep ever. I was relieved, excited about possibilities. But more than that, I was proud of myself for choosing me, for choosing to come back home to me. Starting Legally Clueless was me creating a space that never existed for me in traditional radio. Everything was so performative there, so fast, so not real. My mistake was trying for all of those years to reduce myself into a space that wasn't built for me. I've just turned 32 and I can say the third floor is wonderful, but there was no doorman handing out confidence, clarity and freedom when I arrived. I realized that I had all of those things inside me already. I just kept running away from them, trying to fit in. This podcast is such a wonderful reminder that perhaps it's time for you to stop trying to fit in and create a space for you a space that you get to call your home. 100 episodes of fun, laughter, tears, and inspiration. We are just getting started on Legally Clueless. I hope you enjoyed that story and you can watch me tell it live in our visual show, which is a special edition show that we've done for this 100th episode. Just head over to my YouTube channel. The link is in the description of this episode and you can watch all of the stories live, which is something we have never done before on this podcast. Maybe I'm going to make it a thing for every 100th episode. I'll share a story and we'll have video elements to it. Hmm. <laughs> Let's see. Let's talk in the next 100 weeks. I know I keep saying this a lot, but I'm really glad that I created this space, as you heard in my story for us and for me to really be unapologetically me, especially at a time when I thought that perhaps audio content wasn't for me because there was no space for me or people like me in traditional media. So in a sense, this podcast saved a lot. <laughs> it really has done a lot for me personally. But I also love that I've gotten to learn so much from the various stories. I've gotten to meet so many wonderful people from the various 
countries and spaces that the podcast has been in and from the various people that I have recorded for the podcast. I've also gotten to meet some of you who listen to the podcast and I really am so thankful that whenever we do meet, you don't hesitate or shy away from sharing that you listen to the podcast because I find that so affirming to me. Most of the times when I do meet people, one of their favorite stories has got to be... (laughs) Kadzo's tale of buying him curtains worth 75,000 Kenya shillings. And that's our next story. 100 episodes ago, the journey began. Stay tuned to Legally Clueless for more amazing stories from across Africa. This is in my past life. (laughs) I have to put that disclaimer. I am not that human anymore. I've grown and I've evolved. In my past life, I decided to go out for a drink with a few of my friends and we went to a very frequented club in Nairobi, Westlands Avenue. And I remember we had gone to take a few shots outside and when we were coming back in, I saw this guy. Just the same way you see it in the movies, like when everything else just disappears and it's that man. Later on when I was actually reliving that memory, he'd really worn like some terrible outfit and stuff. But anyway, at that moment, I was like, wow. This is it. So I was attracted to Brian because he was tall. I have a thing for skinnies, so he was skinny. (laughs) So I approached him. I was going to buy a drink anyway, and he was at the bar. And we sparked up a conversation, and he was an interesting guy. And I was just like, wow, this is it. Thank you, Jesus. I came to the club for fun times, and I left with a boo. Cool. So fast forward two months later, (laughs) when everything, you know when they tell you the writing is on the wall? Imagine the writing is on the wall. <laughs> Read it and bounce. <laughs> yeah, so um, fast forward two months later, we chat every day. We hang out, you know. He's told me all these stories about how his life is fabulous. I'm trying to keep up with him, trying to cheat him, how my life is also fabulous. At that time I was jobless, by the way. But anyway, that's another story for another day. He took me to his home. It looked like when I tell you the writing is on the wall, the writing is always on the wall. Take it and bounce, okay? So his apartment looked like more or less a stopover. He didn't have shears, he had no curtains. And for me, right now, that's a big no. You gotta furnish your house, okay? You're an adult, that is where you live. Furnish your home. He invited me to his house. And so we arrived and he had no curtains. It was like one really old couch that looked like the ones that you you inherit when you move out of your parents' houses for the first time, you know? It just had, like, the bare minimum. And he told me, like, yo, now this is our place. Um, Please get cozy. There's a bedroom. That's our bedroom and stuff. Look at me being in a relationship that I was not in. Knowing that this was going to be, like, my future home and everything. You know, bear in mind, I hadn't been asked to be his girlfriend, okay? This was me giving myself relationship problems and I'm not in a relationship. So I decided to, you know, spruce the home up, bought a few things and things here and there, bought a few pans. You know, we need to eat, right? We can't be eating off plastic plates all the goddamn time. He had about four plates. A few flowers, few vases, few pots here, you know, just to make like, the place look pretty. But I used to spend a lot of time in that house because, as I told you before, I was jobless. I was trying to, like, do a lot of things here and there. So, and I mean, this is my base house, right? So, I mean, why not? I had a key and everything. So, one day I was hanging out. I was alone in the house. He was, I think, either up to no good or doing his thing. And I was like, hmm, would it be nice to surprise this man with, like, some dope-ass curtains? Yeah, you know, and I was thinking, yeah, you know what, let me not cheapen out. 
I'll buy him some good curtains because, you know, this is our home. So I want to make him feel like I'm being more involved, right? I hopped into the car, drove myself to a very, very high-end, luxurious, and all the other words to describe fancy furniture store in Nairobi. And I acquired him 75,000 shillings worth of curtains. And I put them in the car, went back to the house, and spruced the place up. Oh my gosh. Anyway, so I went, hung the curtains. Can you believe that this man, first of all, showed up the next day? Not even that day. The next day. And not even a... Uh, it's like, oh wow, you changed the color. I'm just like, ah, niggas. <laughs> but anyway, in my heart I told myself, I know he loves it. He doesn't want to like act out. Fast forward to about a month and a half later. So we are, I mean, now this is my home now. <laughs> right? <coughs> Growth is a beautiful thing. So in the dead of night, we are asleep. I get a call. And this was at around 12.31 in the morning. And I get a call. And it's a lady on the other side of the phone. And she tells me, hi, cards all right? And I'm like, wow, yes. She's like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, are you with Brian? And I'm like, who might this be? And she's like, you don't worry. Um, if you're with him, please tell him that his son is feeling unwell. Can he wrap it up wherever he is and come back home quickly? Wrap it up. Wow. And I asked her, so who might you be? It's the wife. Tell him to wrap it up quickly wherever he is and come home quickly. She hung up. So me in my head, I'm like, what? Wait. Wife. Okay. Home. <laughs> home. So where exactly am I? <laughs> <laughs> and I looked to my side, I'm like, Brian, yo, I'm, I'm, am I dreaming? So I wake him up and I tell him, do you recognize this number? And you know the way men do this thing where when you bust them, they try to like turn it around to make it look like it's, you're the issue. So he sees the number and it, it, it like knocks him out for a bit. So he wakes up and tells me, where did you get this number from? Have you been snooping on my phone? Nigga, your wife has just called me <laughs> at 1 a.m. And she's at, apparently, your home. <laughs> and here you're accusing me about going through your phone? So I tell him, yeah, some lady has called me, told me that your son is sick and you need to go home quickly. And he's like, really? Okay, give me a second. So he jumps out of the bed, gets dressed, and then he tells me, I'll explain when I get back. And he leaves. And I was left alone and I was wondering, okay, what is happening? He's married and I mean, and he has a home and, and where am I? <laughs> I didn't sleep. So, so Brian comes back the next day in the morning at around nine, showers, does a change of clothing, tells me he's going to work. He'll come and explain later on in the evening. Say so I was being held hostage in a house that is not mine. <laughs> being jobless, never a good thing. Who was I? I waited. I like that all my girlfriends, of course, omitted some few things because I don't want to look like an idiot. We all do that as women, right? So I was hyping myself up. Um, I'm getting, like, you know, all boiled and, you know, yes, da-da-da-da-da-da, I know what, you know, it's definitely over. He has to, like, explain these things and stuff. He came back past midnight, drunk, and he told me, oh, you know, the first time I met you, I told you that I'm going through a lot of things. I was honest with you and I didn't lie to you. It's just that um, I told you that night 
and you never brought it up again. So I didn't lie to you. I want you to know that first and foremost, I didn't lie to you. Dude, your wife just called me at 1 a.m. How did you not lie to me? Anyway, so he told me, you know, first and foremost, it's just this situation that I'm in. Yes, I have a kid. I knew of the kid, but he, he, he is a good dad. I can't take that away from him. So he'd hang out with his child over the weekends. So I knew of his son. I just thought that the son was from the situationship that he was talking about. He always used to talk about like his ex. Turned out that it was his ex-wife, <laughs> who was not an ex, <laughs> who was still actively in his life. So I later realized, I later came to find out that he had two homes. So he had the house that he lived in, that was his home. And then he had this other bachelor pad that he'd take his extracurricular activities to, me being included. So here I was, 23 years of age, thinking that this is it. I've got my man, he has our home. We are going to live happily ever after. <laughs> Little did I know I was in the other other house. <laughs> A lot of men who are cheats tend to be narcissists. So they pry on, on areas that make you feel low, make you feel down. And then they believe that they are the ones who can pick you up from that. He insisted that he had told me the truth and it was me who never asked. But you know the way we watch all these love movies and all those things. And I remember the line he told me, he told me, but I believe there is something here and I want us to pursue it. And I was just like, oh, what? Gosh, God, today is the day I found my man. And then he proceeded to cry, guys. And he's like, you know, I keep on asking God, will I ever be happy? Will I ever fall in love again? Will a woman accept me and my flaws? And me in my heart, I'm just like, no, but I'm here, it's okay. Come, it's okay. I was bleed. Turns out that this man was fully married. Fully married. Fully married. <laughs> Have I said that part? Have I talked about the part that he's fully married? He was fully married. There was not in Nairobi, Ama half half true. Even dowry. <laughs> he was full on married. Fully. Bear in mind, me staying opened the doors even further of for leeway. So what happened was now that I opened that door, whenever she'd call, it was me who used to give him space. To talk to her she'd be shouting on the phone he'd step out then he'd leave not come back then come back maybe after two three days so that kept on happening that kept on happening it became a norm imagine one of the final straw our anniversary was coming up not that <laughs> our anniversary so uh i i decided to do something special i bought like nice scented candles uh, i visited an Longering shop <laughs> cooked his favorite meal um and i told him babe please come home early i have a surprise for you and he told me oh nice cool i'll be there by nine put on i i made a mix by there on youtube <laughs> by 7 30 i'd finished cooking by eight at least oh i had petals Growth is a beautiful thing. Scattered the petals around, you know, lit my candles, put myself on the sofa. I had oiled myself. I looked like a fish, you know, I'd, <laughs> with the bath and body works, things that I had just procured anyway. Um, so 9, 10, 11, 12. I have no message, no missed call. It's getting late. The candle is halfway burnt. The playlist is over. So I call him. And he's in a noisy place. There's a lot of noise in the background. And he tells me, I'm on my way, I'm on my 
don't sleep, I'm coming, I'm on my way. So I tell him, cool, and then he hung up. So that's midnight, one, two, three. I'd given up, I switched off the candles, I was going to bed. So when I was on my way to bed, I could hear footsteps on the stairs. So I'm just like, ah, finally he's come. So I've gone back, put on the candles, you know, spread myself. I'm ready for the night to begin now, right? Popped the food into the microwave, set it up and everything. So as the steps keep on increasing, so did the noises. The noises were not just one. I could hear two, three. There are some people having a conversation. So I locked the door. I put, I left the key inside because, you know, you never know, it might not be him. And he inserted the key and he tried to open. And then now I could fully hear the voices. So he calls me and he tells me, yo, open the door. And as he said that, I could hear three other voices in the back. This guy had come with his friends. <laughs> so there was me blowing out the candles, trying to sweep up the petals, you know, doing like a whole overhaul, turned off the music, ni 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 ni. Everything put, made it look like, like there was nothing happening, right? Went to open the door with her gown. They tend to complain. By the way, with my eyebrows, which are on fleek and everything, they tend to complain the way, oh, you know, you've come late. You were supposed to come here at nine. This guy proceeds to enter with his friends. Okay, he served them the food that I had cooked, like for us. He didn't even eat. And then I could hear his friends saying, hey, umsako na jokupika, in translation is, Hey, this, 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 this your woman, see she can cook, we should, <laughs> we should be coming here often, yeah. And they proceeded to drink until morning. <laughs> so he comes to bed at around 6.30, plops himself and blacks out. I have been waiting the whole night to celebrate our what? Anniversary. Okay, let us fast forward. The final straw, we are out, he's at the bar. Funny how, how things work, we were at the bar that we met. You're supposed to procure some shots. And then I see him talking to this other lady. And his hand was on the nape of her waistline. And he looked a bit too cozy, a bit too comfortable. I started feeling some type of way, right? Um, but in mind, this time, like, I've, I've lost half my friends. They don't want to hear Nana Brian stories. I've been, you know, I tell them this, and then I go and I do something else. And then I go back, I tell them, okay, I did it. But, and so now, this time round, I know this is, I have to, this is on me now, you know, I have to face this head on. So I walk to the bar and he's really having like, a, you know, it was really intimate. Like even the way he was, like he was looking into her face because, you know, he's really tall. So he was looking into her face and like they're having a convo. So I slotted myself inside in the middle and I told him, hi Brian, introduce me to your friend. And he's like, yeah, sure. Um, meet Kare, Kare, this is Kadzo, my friend. And I'm like, your friend? I'm like, ha, 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 ha. He says that a lot. I'm his girlfriend. And he tells me, whoa, 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 whoa. No, you're not. I'm like, yes, I am. And then Kare's like, okay, I'll just come back later. So she left the two of us there. And I'm like, why would you say that in front of people? And he told me, get this. I've never asked you to be my girlfriend. Ah, <laughs> I think now the writing was on the wall, all of it. Yeah, and he told me, I've... I thought we were just hanging out and it's been fun. I've never asked you to be my girlfriend. Anyway, I stormed out and I left. Crying my ass off, went home. He didn't speak to me for about, we didn't speak for about a week. Then he called me. Oh man, I felt really bad. Um, and he told me to come over so that we can talk. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm gonna come over. I went and did my hair, did my nails. I don't know why I'd worn like matching in a wear. I think that was just for my self-confidence. 
it wasn't. <laughs> Took myself to his place and he told me, you know, don't get it twisted. You know, we're still going slow. This is, remember, when I told you to take note of anniversary. Here I was dating someone who was not dating me back. <laughs> ah, anyway, going through when that whole fiasco was finally over and I sat down and I thought about it. I actually really did give this man cues to really use me, you know. I think I don't want to blame him fully, but I think I also have myself to blame. I thought that maybe he'd do better, not that he's the one who wants to get me. He didn't, nothing changed. So after a week, a week and a half of so many pep talks from my friends, so many this, so many that, I left. I eventually left. I deleted his number. I blocked him, moved on. About a month, a month and a half later, one of my then friends sends me a picture and it was of him and this other girl. And he's just like, yo, guess I've just met in the club. And I'm like, yeah, nah, I don't want none of that. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be that person. I don't want none of that. I researched just a bit. So I, I wanted to see, hmm, who's this? You know, just curiosity too. I get onto this girl's Instagram page. Oh my gosh, there were so many photos of her and this dude, okay, in the house with his friends. Like, it was the same script, even with the guys who used to tell me the way, um, this man is definitely for you, he's so serious for you, he's so serious about you. She had candid selfies with these friends of his. And I was just like, yep, you know what? <laughs> he had another me being <laughs> lined up. <laughs> He's still married, by the way, till today. <laughs> okay, guys, and um, yeah, as I, I said, I was 23, I was young. I'm grown, grown now. <laughs> Several relationships later, some together. <laughs> as I said, I learned the writing is always on the wall. Um, he will never leave his wife. Right now, he has three kids with the same woman. They're still married. <laughs> He's had a few, I, I make a point not to follow him that much, but once I, there was once that I was perusing the internet on my, on my banner accounts. <laughs> we all have those. <laughs> no? Y'all don't have banner accounts? You guys don't know what you're missing. You guys want to be busted over there that it was you who was talking. <laughs> nah, bro. <laughs> I talking with my banner account. <laughs> anyway, and I see a picture of him and yet another beep and in the background were my sterling brilliant beige curtains this nigga still has my curtains hanging oh. <laughs> 100 episodes ago the journey began stay tuned to legally clueless for more amazing stories from across africa if you want to watch the raw unfiltered <laughs> Story by Kadzo. Head over to my YouTube channel. She is one of the storytellers in our 100th episode special. Oh man, she looks so wonderful and she's just so 
open and honest about this story and then her laughter her laughter is just so infectious i am pretty sure you're going to enjoy watching her tell that story so link in the description to my youtube channel that was definitely one of the most interesting stories to record i've recorded over 150 stories so far some you've heard already and some you're yet to hear the podcast has recorded stories by africans in kenya of course in senegal in ghana in nigeria in south africa in egypt in Ethiopia, in the United States of America. And the podcast has also done a university tour where over 50 stories from young Africans in USIU Africa, my alma mater, big shout out to everybody who went to USIU. We also went to Meru University, which is so awesome. We went to Riara University, which is amazing, and so many other campuses. And we got to sit down with young Africans and listen to their lived experiences, listen to their stories. And man, I learned so much, even just about my own country. Things I thought I knew, turns out I really didn't. One of the stories recorded during the Legally Clueless University tour was an inspiring story by Bobby. A story that will take you from flipping a coin to decide if he'll live or die to winning seven film awards not one not two not three <laughs> but seven the next story you're about to hear is by bobby we've shared with you inspiration from across africa today we celebrate you 100 episodes of legally clueless after now being done with uh primary and situations back home were tricky because my mom had um left her job because she wanted to follow God full time. The only option was now to go to a public school. Mind you, I was in a private primary school where, you know, it was spaghetti and um, it was meatballs. Now you're going to Gideri 24-7. You're like, whoa, how am I going to cope with this? So I remember my dad came and told me, yo, you know what? You're going to a public school. There's no, we don't have enough cash to take you to a private school. So I was like, ah, Cool. I remember the first night of secondary, I couldn't even sleep. I was frightened. So uh, my sisters took me to school and I remember a couple of older boys came to, they pretended they were helping me carry my stuff. By the time we reached the dorm, I had nothing. My bucket, yakuoga, the, everything was. So the only thing I was left with were the clothes that I wore coming to school. So you can imagine, I have literally nothing. And the school I've been taken to is in Iceland's top five hardest schools, like that was one of them, you know, like, so I remember up and up until form one, I started drinking when I was 15, peer pressure, when you're in Rome, do as the Romans do. And we weren't drinking, even had liquor. It was alcohol worth 40 bob. And they used to come into small sachets. <laughs> and my dad, God bless him, um, started noticing I started changing because I started now adapting to life, the Islam's life. Most cool kids call it Odis. Yeah, so at one point of my life, I was an Ob, an Odi. And yeah, so my dad was able to see it quick and fast. And he was like, yo, you have to switch schools. So I went from out of the frying pan into the fire. So he took me through. Okay, let's say this school I was in, because I don't want to mention it, it was number five. Now the school he took me to now was number two, you know, like from number five to number two, you know, 
here where everyone eh it's there's a smiling say, saying goes um pwagu pata pwaguzi where a small thief finds a bigger thief now that's the school i feel like that school was inspired by alibaba and the 40 thieves because everyone there eh everyone was just you know like you had to sleep with you had to tie your shoes like a necklace so that when you wake up in the morning you still have your shoes you know like guys warm guys didn't have mercy you know in terms of vests everything socks like they wouldn't leave anything for you so life there was pretty much just like every boy growing up you just have to either become tough and uh, do as the romans do or at the end of the day you will end up just playing the victim each and every time you know um so i did i, I finished my kcse and honestly i wasn't expecting to pass because yeah like there's physics paper i slept during the whole paper the only thing i knew the only question they asked that i knew was my index number so the rest of the paper was blank so i was even shocked when my grades came out and i had a c so yeah i could go to uni now going to university i'm looking for universities and um my dad played for harambee stars and so growing up as a footballer's child everyone will tell you that you want your dad is your icon so for the longest i knew i wanted to be a footballer but then when that didn't work my second option like every other child thinks is um becoming a pilot but funny thing is i already had a d plus in physics so <laughs> so one day we were watching telly with my mom and we see larry mado doing the trend and my mom was like yo you know you could actually do this and i was like for real hey sema ngwe and i'm going to do journalism and my mom was like hey ngwe so i'm like i cool tomorrow journalism it is so that's how i ended up doing journalism my first pick was multimedia university um because i i thought it was kind of public as well and my dad was like yo my friend told me about triara university and i laughed i can't forget that day you know like my dad was very serious telling me i want you to go to triara i laughed i was like bro you know the whole fees i used to pay in secondary is not even one semester triara why are you playing and my dad was like ah you just go check so when i went i found out oh kumbe it was just 3000 more than multimedia university and so he told me make a choice where are you going hey i saw the brochures and i saw foreign girls I kid you not that's how I ended up going to Riara University. I looked at the brochure like this and I saw wow 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 wow. I've never seen Indian girls. Oh, I'm going to be in the same class with girls from Pakistan. Oh my god. This is amazing. So I called my dad and I was like, "Yo, I have I'm going to Riara. It's final." It's hey, it's like, "Why why the change of heart? Hey, 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 don't ask questions. Riara is where my heart is." So now I join uni and um it was it was culture shock i won't even lie to you because now you know in my school like you'd even have to go to the washrooms with your whole desk because even if you had a padlock what was a padlock you know it was just one kick away and the padlock is gone everything is gone so i mean riara i'm seeing people leaving their laptops so i'm like wow you do that here ah uh, the smartphones and it's iPhones you know at that time me my phone um i'm using a rubber band to hold the battery and the phone together and i'm seeing people with iPhones hey, i'm like kidogo hey god are you tempting me hey am i supposed to go back to my old ways but i was like nah i have to level up a bit so um it was really a culture shock because i remember my dad was like yo bro i can only pay for you your fees but lunch money that's up to you so what you could do is tell your mom to make a lot of supper and you carry it in a hot pot i'm like bro when am i in primary 
carry you know like guys are in a lecture and they can smell rice and beans or githeri and everyone knows that's bobby hey i i don't want labels you know so I was like, it's okay it took me some it took me like two semesters to actually make friends uh because i just felt like ah, that's this these people are not my cup of tea slowly by slowly i started getting getting into it I was really getting along with it because now I found my purpose in Riara which was now filmmaking. When I started doing filmmaking, I did my first short film in 2016. I was actually the first student to fill an entire hall. So we were selling a ticket for 100 bob for a 7 minute movie and we had more than 400 people. You know, it was really dope to see more than 400 people show up on my first short film premiere. That was really nice and I was now getting into a comfort zone where I felt like now a hey, My name is now in everyone's mouth. Eh, hey, that guy from journalism, Bobby, Bobby, Bobby. Now I'm not Bobby from Eastlands. Now, eh, hey, I'm part. I'm a cool kid now. Then in 2017, uh, we got a new dean. This is where the trouble began. I, for some strange reason, one day the studio was locked and I went to complain and I was like, "Yo, I need to use the computers." So I went to the dean's office. She was a new dean and I was like, "Yo, why is the studio locked?" And she was like, "No, don't worry. It's just some small things." And by the way, what's your name? What's your admission number? I gave her my name, my admission number. So she noticed I wasn't in session because the same year my uh, my dad, my dad's contract ended both parents um were not working so i was just in school because i didn't want to go i didn't want to go back to being idol and going back to the streets yani mtaani and just chilling with people so for me school was my escape i could come edit use the computers use the cameras and just keep on adding on my on my craft but she was like she noticed and she was like she called me back to her office the next day and she was like yo you're not in class so i explained it to her and she was like at first she was very nice i actually thought this is a really nice lady she was smiling telling me oh don't worry okay you just do this i'll tomorrow i'll come in and we'll have a conversation on that don't worry okay you go so the next day comes and she's like you have to pack up your stuff and leave like what how how you know at that time i felt like i was the king of riara what do you mean pack up my stuff and leave yeah she's like yeah if you're not a student you can't come and just use equipment and stuff this is an institution you know this is not an airbnb where you can just come and chill like this is an institution it runs so as there was like explaining my situation yo it's tough back at home yo yo but she didn't even listen you know for the first time i cried in front of someone you know and i was like please um i really don't want to go home man don't do this to me please but she really didn't care so i left and i was like i cool since we'll just see who's the bigger person oh since now i'm known i thought i i was known by the vice chancellor so i went to the vice chancellor's office i explained my situation i was like ah you don't worry everything is going to be cool so the unfortunate thing is the vice chancellor traveled and went abroad so now she came back again She's like I don't want to see you in the school premises. I'm like, "What? I talked to the vice chancellor. Where is he? I don't have his contacts. He's in a different country." Oh, so it was just like you don't you can't come again. Me just took it as a joke. So one morning there I am in school at the gate and the askaris who are my friends because on Saturdays I used to go to school. I like I yani school was my life. The cleaning people, the watchmen, while going on injury. So they're like, Bobby, we've been told not to allow you in school. And I was like, Why? They were even asking me, What happened? What did you do? And I was like, I don't even know. So she came in. She looked at me. She said hi. She laughed. Like, huh? 
I have the last laugh and she left. And I got a call from the uh, deputy vice chancellor telling me, oh, you're not allowed in the school anymore. So just go home. So I went home. That was really one of the darkest moments in my life because now I was there like, yo, what happens? Uh, my friends from school had the story and they were like, yo, don't worry, Bobby. Hey, Nelson Mandela. I felt like Nelson Mandela. Don't worry, we have your back. Freedom is coming tomorrow. We'll set you free. You'll be back in school. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they arranged to do a meeting, an inter a meeting with the school on my behalf, and only three people showed up out of a hundred people. And I was still the chairman of the broadcast club, which was the journalism club, but only three people out of 200 people, only three people showed up. So I knew now I'm doomed, like there's nothing I could do. So it's now going back home and I had to change everything. I had to change my sleeping patterns because you want the days to be shorter so you sleep more hours so that you can't face your reality. And I remember it really got tough because I was just seeing a month later, my friends are graduating from their diplomas and I was supposed to be in that class. So I'm seeing them throwing their, having fun, going for parties, there I am. Just like, wow, my situation is getting worse, you know. And it got to me now. The girl I was dating at that time, PIA, she showed me, I thought she was my rock. Hey, it's tough. T for tough. Hey, the girl I was dating at the time, she also left. So I really had no one. You know, I just felt alone. And you know, with African parents, they don't believe in things like depression. Like depression, what's depression? So they couldn't even notice the change in me. I remember this one night, I was just like, you know what? I've been going to church, nothing's been working. Here I am, nothing's working. Ah, bro, it's time to go. Like, I, I've read the Bible and it says, riches are in heaven. My riches are in heaven. What, what am I doing on earth then? Let me go collect my riches, you know? And I was there and I just felt like, like, now I'm done. Like, it was 3 a.m. in the morning, one early morning, and I was like, now I'm done. I'm actually done. This is the end for me. There's nothing more for me in this life. So I remember um, 3 a.m. one night there, I'm crying. I'm just like, now looking at my options, what do I have? Bunch of expired tablets or slitting my wrist. Those are the options that were there on the table. And I remember I was, I was just like, God, I'm giving you one last time. This is the last time. And if you don't show yourself today, I'm coming to see you. And I was so broke. The only thing I had was a 50 cent coin. And I remember I tossed that coin. I was like, so if it lands on heads, because a coin only has two sides, it's either yes or no. And I prayed and I told God, if it lands on heads, then it means you want me and I'm coming. I'm going through. If it lands on tails, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. So I threw the coin uh, the first time. And it went on tails. I was like, ah, beginner's luck. Ah, let's switch sides. You know, let's switch sides. So I'm like, okay, now heads, I'm not doing it. Tails, I, I switched. I, I, I flipped that coin more than six times. And every time it landed at no, which was very strange. You know, it, there's no probability at six times. You know, you were just, me honestly, out of those six, I was just waiting for that one. That one time. And I know that's why the six all landed at no, because I just wanted that yes and say, yes. Okay, this is a sign. Let's go. Let's do this. But nothing. So I remember that night I just cried myself to sleep. After crying myself to sleep, I was like, okay, Sour, you said you still want me on this earth. And show me what you want me to do. And slowly by slowly, I started developing an interest on YouTube. And now I was like, oh, snap. Hey, YouTube. Started seeing other YouTubers from the UK doing group YouTube. And I was like, that's so dope. And since I'm from Eastlands and my friends 
and school are from Westlands, Westy. Ah, it's like East meets West. Oh, snap, that's a really good name. So that's how I came up with the name for our channel, East meets West. And I was like, I called my friend Dominic. I'm like, Dom, I have an idea. We start a YouTube channel, bro. Are you sure? Eh, YouTube. You know, 2017 YouTube in Kenya wasn't that popular. So eventually now the, the issue was how to sneak. Everyone knows my face. I'm not allowed in the school premises, but I have to sneak in. So the only way I could do that is on Saturdays. And now I have to sneak into school to shoot videos and then leap because I can't come during the, the weekday because the, deputy, the, the dean is there. So we started doing that and then one of my lecturers, big shout out to Mr. Kinyeki, there was an East African Student Film Festival and the short film I did in 2016, um, he was like, yo, why don't we submit this film? And I was like, yeah, and then there was another film I did with a smartphone. And I was like, there's also a category for a smartphone, so let's submit. And I was like, okay, I don't have anything to lose. So we went for that competition and by God's grace, we won eight awards. As I said, my, I had a phone like my phone had rubber bands, like a hundred rubber bands holding the battery. And I remember I won an Infinix phone for best smartphone uh, film. And I was crowned um, Infinix Rising Star at that time. So it really felt nice. And at that moment, that's when the school was like, hey, who's this Bobby? You know, what can we do for him to appreciate him? Because I was the first student to ever win anything in terms of multimedia journalism in the school. And that's when, um, where I'm really grateful, the owners of the school called me and they're like, they asked my lecturer, like, what could we do for him? Buy him equipment? And they're like, no, this guy hasn't been in school for two semesters. He's just been home doing nothing. They asked why. He can't afford fees and stuff like that. They're like, and you guys let him go. So they called me back and they were like, yo, we've paid everything. Even your graduation gown, it's been catered for. You just come back to school um because you're really talented in this film stuff so that's how i ended up uh going back to university and honestly looking back at it i'm if someone asked me is there a god i'm like yeah because everything just ended up aligning you know very well after that now I was back in university and i feel 2018 now that was 2017 2018 was also a good year because I did my first documentary, which came in fourth in Africa at the Natalie Lorenzo Awards. That's like one of the biggest documentary awards in the world. So we came in fourth and I won my first Kalasha as well in 2018. Looking back at it, I was like, oh, this is really what I was meant to do. You know, 2019, I was able to get a Canon Film, Canon had a, a film festival that they were sponsoring and I also got to win an award. So things just started falling in line. But the thing about going through a phase in life, it the pain, one thing I've learned is pain is necessary for growth. For you to grow, pain is essential. And up until this very day and age, I was talking to someone and I realized that I never quite let go of everything that ever happened in my life. I always held on to it. The people who hurt me, the people who did anything bad to me, I always, I never quite had closure from the whole situation. That's when I realized that depression is holding on to the past and anxiety is having worries for the future. So you have to be in the present because that's where everything is happening. That's where the magic is. And in the present, you don't have to carry the weight of what happened or your worries of what's going to happen. We've shared with you inspiration from across Africa. Today, we celebrate you.
100 episodes of Legally Clueless. Honestly, Bobby has grown to be one of my favorite human beings. He's just so full of life and so wise. And I'm pretty sure he's going to be going so far in his film career. And of course, you can add a face to the voice you heard by checking him out in our 100th episode special on my YouTube channel, He is one of the storytellers in that show. So another milestone that I am super proud of happened in May 2019. Legally Clueless made history by becoming one of the first syndicated podcasts in the region as a very international media company, (laughs) Trace, picked up this podcast to air on Trace Radio in Kenya. And I was really excited about that because first, pitching to Trace was the third time I was pitching the idea to syndicate this podcast. The first time I pitched it, I didn't even have episode one. Yeah, even those eight minutes were not there. (laughs) And I pitched it to my former boss at Radio Africa because I thought, well, this makes sense. Why would you want the hustle of having an employee? Why can't I just produce a show and deliver to you episodes? It made so much sense in my head. The pitch didn't go well, maybe because A, I did not have even one episode to play for him (laughs) to explain what exactly I was trying to do. But also, I think he was very hell-bent on keeping me at the station. So the only way I was going to have a syndicated show was if I stayed at the station. And that was just something I really didn't want to do. The second time I pitched the show was the beginning of 2020, actually. Maybe end of 2019 into beginning of 2020. And it was to a new age media company that was actually digital. So it's an app. I was like... We are so aligned. Do you want my podcast? (laughs) You can play it on um, some of your radio stations because the app actually had quite a few different radio stations on it, different genres of music. It was, it's actually a pretty good idea. I can't really tell you what happened with that pitch because I don't even know myself. I think they just went silent. I don't know. Maybe I wasn't convincing enough. I don't know. But I also believe that the universe lets things happen the way they happen for a reason. And I'm glad they did because the third pitch was to Trace. And I still remember sitting with one person from Trace, talking to them about it. And they were like, this makes so much sense. Put together a deck. So I did. And then I had a pitch with the with the regional head of Trace. And it was so nerve wracking. He had such tough questions. Shout out to you, Danny, though. <laughs> You're so amazing. But I was just like, oh my God, I hope this works. I hope this works because I was just like, can you imagine this podcast being on Trace? That would be so wonderful. That would be so wild. Like that chick was recording episode one for eight minutes. <laughs> Did she ever think she would be here pitching to Trace? Well, it went through. And I'm very proud about the move to have this podcast on Trace because I think it revolutionizes how Kenyans interact with podcasts. Um, It changes the future of podcasting in East Africa. I think that's so wonderful. Also in 2020, in February, I introduced the Legally Clueless Residencies. 
And that was to be a series of workshops that seek to just train young Africans with the skills needed to build successful podcasts so that we can have agency over our stories. We can talk about the issues that we want to talk about. We don't have to wait for mainstream media to do it. We can do it for ourselves and create our own podcast communities. It's really simple to learn these skills. So I started off at USIU, of course, because that's the uni I went to and had a wonderful workshop there. The students were so amazing and the faculty as well. And then in March, Corona hit <laughs> and we couldn't convene. Oh man, I was so gutted about that. But I'm currently working on something that will see this opportunity open up not only for particular university students, but for young Africans across the board. And I'm really excited about it. Not in a million years did I think that I would be at the forefront of helping young Africans learn how to podcast. So I'm super excited about that. That that announcement will come a little later. I don't want to jinx it by saying too much. Although I have said a lot, but whatever. <laughs> and then in 2020, we ended the year on such a high note before Christmas week, I was just, you know, kind of doing admin work, checking the back end of everything because I wanted to take it easy on Christmas week, obviously. And then I find out that we have surpassed a million streams. So I'm like, what? <laughs> My projections were we were meant to be surpassing that actually this month in February. I thought I would be surpassing a million streams this month but everything happened much faster and i was just so excited i was not prepared but i was just like oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god what this is the best christmas gift so i'm very thankful to you for streaming this podcast over one million times i'm also very thankful that you who listens and to trace and anybody who has partnered with me on this podcast I'm very thankful for you believing in the podcast's mission, its purpose, in my dream, in new beginnings. And speaking of new beginnings, our next storyteller will speak of that, new beginnings, new love. It's another favorite story that has been on the podcast over the past 100 weeks. And it's Jerry, aka Samantha's story of 21 days of crying and six months of healing. Thank you for being part of this amazing journey. A hundred episodes. We are just getting started on Legally Clueless. So in 2016, I just got out of an eight-year relationship. And four out of those eight years, we were married. It was a very difficult relationship. And it took me a very, very long time to get to the point where I was able to leave because it was a very violent relationship. And as a mother of two, I felt like at that point, the most important thing for me and for the children was to leave and to find a better space for myself and for the children. So on the last day of this relationship, it was a very dramatic day. My then husband hadn't been home for a couple of days and he had left with my laptop. It was important that I get this laptop back because I needed it to work. And so I reached out to him and I asked him for the laptop and I said, could you please at least swing by and drop it off? And at this point he said, you know what, in any case, I'm coming to pick my stuff. So I said, oh, okay. At this point, I knew the relationship had to end. Something had to give. So when he said that he was coming for his things, I was very okay with that. So he came. As per my expectation, he was extremely aggressive. Um, he was unreasonable. And 
it was very difficult for us to get a simple conversation going. I had packed his things one by one, very neatly in a suitcase, in a couple of bags, and put them by the door. In any case, when he came, I wanted him to just neatly organize himself and leave without any further issues. Unfortunately, that's not how it went. And when he came, he looked for a lot of small, small reasons to pick on me and insult me and just say all these sorts of negative things towards me. I really didn't understand what it was, but on this particular day I knew because of sort of just that aggression, I don't know, that proverbial look in the eye, you know, in the look in his eyes. I knew that this was different. I knew that this was going to be a, a very violent, you know, episode. And so it was. He came at me, he strangled me, he actually like knocked me in the head. He literally head butted me right on my forehead. He took all the wall hangings down, all the family photos, all the framed wedding photos and all those things, and he threw them at me. One by one, he threw his wedding ring at me. At this point, I had already known that this was gonna be the last day that I was gonna go through this. I knew that this was the last time I was gonna let him cross boundaries like this with me and so I just sort of just let it happen so he got home around noon so eventually around one o'clock after a lot a lot of this dramatic you know fighting scene had taken place I decided to pick up my stuff and leave by leaving this just meant running away because I knew I wasn't safe at this point I had stashed all my important documents and my phone and everything with the help of the nanny. I knew it was important that I do this because he would have gone in to any great length to inconvenience me at this point. So I stashed everything in her under her mattress, quite literally, and I ran to the police station. The police station was about 400 meters uh, down the road, so I ran and I filed a report. The reason why I felt that it was important to file a report on this day is because I needed a reason never ever to go back. I hadn't ever filed a report before, so I didn't even know you know, what the Kenyan police system is. Um, it wasn't the most friendly, I must say, but it, I, I, I did what I had to do and I got the P3 form. They needed me to go to a hospital and get a physical examination done, and I did that. It was difficult, it was tough, it was painful. I was crying the whole day. The children were at my parents' home because this took place during the December holiday period. So fortunately, all this went down when the children were safely at my parents' home. So it was just the nanny, me, and him at this point. So when I was at the police station, I, I asked for their phone and I called her. I called the nanny and I asked her where is he she says he's come out looking for you so I was like oh my god this guy is gonna come and literally kill me out here I mean and that's very scary to be honest and I, I had already decided in my mind I had I was very clear that this was the last day but I felt like he was going to do anything to ensure that it wasn't and to ensure that he leaves me with an indelible mark. Um, so the day was very dramatic and it was extremely exhausting. It was a very painful day to have gone through, but I'm very grateful because my mom was there for me and so was my aunt and my sister at the time. When I was in the whole police station situation, the nanny called my mom because I had a list of emergency contacts on the fridge. So she called my mom and told her everything. And so my mom rushed over with my aunt, you know, to help me do the through the whole hospital situation. When I got back home and the dust had settled, it was so unreal. My kids were there and they were looking at me wondering, like, where is mom here? You know, it was confusing because I wasn't, I hadn't planned. I'm a little bit of a planner. I hadn't planned to be home. So I didn't really know where to begin. It wasn't making a whole lot of obvious sense to me. So <laughs> I decided to sit down in the study room at my parents' house and I just took out a notebook and I decided to pen a few things down. At this point, because I knew the relationship had 
to have ended at some point. I was alive to the fact that there was a sense of moving on that I needed to enter into and heal from whatever had happened that day and in the last eight years that had contributed to the pain that I was feeling, you know, at this particular time. So I penned down three things. I said, I'm going to cry for 21 days. Now, this is me planning my life. So I said, I was going to cry for 21 days. If I need to cry every day for 21 days, I'll cry every day for 21 days. In six months, I was very sure that six months down the line, I was supposed to be healed enough to have conversations about it, um, whether it was with his side of the family or my side of the family or a friend or somebody else. I knew six months from that day I needed to have been okay to focus on other things, you know. I'm a mom, I'm a business owner, amongst other things. So those were the first two things I wrote. The third thing I remember very clearly writing was around a year from now, when I see him, I want to see him like a regular human being. Just like when you see your Uber driver or when you see somebody in the front desk at an office. I literally wanted to feel nothing. Like I have no emotion towards this person. I didn't want to carry any bitterness. I didn't want to carry any fear. I didn't want to carry any you know, sense of helplessness after all the years where I had yielded so much power over to him. I knew a year from then I wanted to feel nothing like I wanted to have the most neutral emotion when I see him maybe caution you know but more than anything I just wanted to see him as a regular human being that was important to me because I knew moving forward having gone through what it is I went through on that very day and you know the many other times that the relationship was at its worst I didn't want to move on crediting him or crediting that marriage or that relationship for anything else in my life you know I didn't want to walk around saying uh, you know, I am uh, this way because so-and-so did this to me. Or, you know, just picking up a perception about men, just associating so many things to him. So I was very clear that I wanted to stand on my own and be very independent. And so that's where the intentional healing really began. I worked tirelessly to ensure that um, I was available to myself first crying when I needed to, talking to the people who I needed to talk to, to be able to, to heal through it better. And I remember one other thing I wrote was, so when I went home, I remember feeling like there's nobody I could call and to let them know exactly what I'm going through, you know. There's nobody who I could call to just like give me some sense of direction. Everybody was going to call and like spew a lot of anger and, you know, make me feel worse about the situation that had happened. So one of the other things I had rem uh, I remember writing was three years from now, I'm going to be the person that I'd be able to, I would have been able to call today where I can understand the situation. I don't have to contribute to the situation, but I get it. As a mom, you know, I needed to be able to explain it to the children very gracefully and package it for their age, for them to be able to understand, yeah, mommy's home, mommy's in Shosho's house, this is where I'm, I'm gonna stay, when this is where we're gonna stay together, but it is well. So I spent a lot of time hugging them and loving on them, you know, just being so intentional about being a mom. The relief that I felt being outside of that marriage was amazing because then I could be available as a mom. I could be, you know, better placed to love them and love them fully. There was a lot of, you know, fear and pain that I had to get through but I could definitely be there for them. So being at home was quite an adjustment in the beginning, to be very honest. It's not easy to go back home when you've been independent for such a long time. It isn't easy to go back under your parents' roof and have them ask you questions like, why did you come home so late? But I took it in stride, you know. They gave me a little space where I could bake my cakes, because that's what I did for a living at the time and, and still do. 
And I remember the relief. It was so tangible. I'd enter that little store, because it was a storeroom, literally, that we just converted and put a workstation. And I'd bake cakes in there, and I was so happy. And I had so much peace. And I could close the door, and there's nobody bugging me, disturbing me, asking me questions, you know, trying to get at me. I was able to block out all the noise and focus on what it is I love. And baking cakes was really, really my therapy at the time. It was easier for me to fulfill orders um, because that's something that was very difficult to do when I was in my marriage. It was very easy to grow the business. It was extremely easy to explore my creative side. I mean, because as a cake baker, you know, that's a lot of it is, is creative. I was able to learn so much about myself. I was able to um, become financially independent, which I wasn't able to do when I was in the marriage. I was perpetually broke. But at this time, I was able to turn around a lot of things. And I remember one time, my girlfriends and I decided that we were going to spend our 30th birthday on a trip. And I said, this sounds great. Where should you think we should go? And they were like, how about we go to Thailand? And I thought, oh my God, I would never be able to afford that. So the year that we were supposed to go to Thailand, which is 2017, just a year, the, the year within my healing, I was able to save up enough and actually get on a plane and go to Thailand. I remember feeling like this is so unbelievable. I didn't even take time to see where Thailand is on the map, but I paid the money, I got my visa and I went for two whole weeks. And that was such an empowering feeling, you know. That's one thing I did for myself that just showed me that there's really no limit other than the one that I will set for myself in my mind. The intentional healing process really enabled me to break through all the difficult and limiting beliefs that my ex had set for me at that time. And the intentional healing period, I'll call it the six month, the six months to one year, taught me so much about myself that I was able to overcome all the fear. So if you understand what it is to be with an abuser, the one big thing that they blanket over you is fear. And so the one year, I still had a lot of it, but I was able to process through it. You can't rush these things. You really have to take every moment at a time. But it was very clear to me at the time that every so often I'd sit down and say, you know what, I do feel better than I did last week, you know, or I do feel better than I did last month. I'd feel like when I'm having conversations with other people, maybe it would make me, I wouldn't cry. Whereas before, you know, just talking about something would make me shed tears. And there's nothing wrong with crying, but I was very clear about my healing because I needed to recover my life. I had given him 80 years from the age of 20 to the age of 28. So now that I was turning 30, I was very clear that I was gonna enjoy my 30s for me as a whole human, you know, not with little fragments of things that I haven't processed and gone through. Living at home for three years, uh, right now, it's so funny, it feels like it was such a short time, but when I was back home at my parents' home, the, those three years felt like it took, it, it felt like seven years in, in condensed into three. One of the key moments that I knew that I was going to be okay and that I was on the right track was when my friend at the time who um, had been a very consistent and kind and very present friend. I remember telling him one day that, gosh, I think I have feelings for you. And he looked at me like, are you sure? And I said, yeah. And it's not because I want you to do anything about it. I just recognize that my heart is working. Like it's back in function. I can actually feel that I like someone, you know? It's great that it's you, but I'm so happy that it works. Why I said that is because I wasn't rebounding. I wasn't scared at all. I knew me liking him was just a result of me receiving his, his kindness and his love and his friendship. And so that's that was the beginning of what then became, you know, the love that I have now, which is my husband. Uh, we just got married last year. 
<laughs> we had a customary marriage ceremony last year, which was amazing. And through it all, I'll just say it, it isn't easy to move from uh, an unhealthy relationship to a healthy one. It takes a lot of time in between. But I really believe because I was so intentional about that and I'm also very intentional about this particular relationship. I'm able to see where I'm still struggling with one or two things from the past because you never really truly heal. You know, there's still a few small things that will crop up over time. But I'm able to investigate those feelings or those tendencies and sit down and ask myself, you know what, are you mad? at him or are you mad at something that somebody else did in the past and then making him pay for it and those are the realities of moving on moving on is beautiful you know people feel like it's a miracle but it takes so much work even to delve into a new relationship with an amazing person so i'm very grateful to be able to have found love it's an amazing feeling the children definitely deserved to have an amazing dad a very present one too and the other thing i'll say is the business has really 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 grown i remember baking cakes when i was in that marriage i'd cry so much and i'd really i i, I used to get things wrong all the time you know i'd forget to put the right amount of sugar i'd forget the correct time of delivery you know i'd forget get so many things because I was dealing with so much. I remember feeling like being with my ex at the time was a job. It was such a full-time job trying to always process his next move before he does it, you know, and that's really no way to live. Moving back home was like three years of relearning, you know, how to do my best at work and how to to come through. I was able to hire people, so the business has really, really grown. And yeah, we, we, we're really proud of, of how things have happened. The children are stable and they're very happy. I think it's just amazing. Um, so if I was to summarize my experience and share this with somebody else, I would definitely say, one, you're never truly and completely healed. The wound becomes a scar, and that scar is something that you can be proud of um, because you've gotten through it. Number two, it to be intentional because if you let things run their course in their motions you might find yourself circling around issues and not dealing with them and not processing through them so it does pay to be intentional I think everybody deserves to live a life with the best version of themselves so for me the best version of myself was a version where I am emotionally sound and I've processed through everything and number three I would say just take a chance you know start that business fall in love again just find happiness there's really no handbook or there's no method to it but I would definitely say just don't be afraid just don't be afraid life is really for the living thank you for being part of this amazing journey a hundred episodes we, we are just, just getting, getting started, started on legally that is one of my personal favorite stories because I know Samantha personally and she's just so wonderful. Make sure you check out the 100th episode special on my YouTube channel. She's one of the storytellers sharing her story live in that visual show. Ah, I'm so proud of that show, my God. So if you hit the link in my, in my description... <laughs> Adele, what's happening? If you hit the link in the description of this episode, you can go directly to my YouTube channel and you can watch that show. Please watch it. I am so proud of it. And hopefully we can, whenever we hit a milestone, do more of such shows. I really enjoyed doing it. So we've come to the end of this episode, this special monumental episode. And I first just want to say thank you for allowing me into your space every single week for the last 100 weeks. I really do appreciate it. 
And I really do enjoy this space and sharing this space with you. I also want to thank everybody who has sent an audio note to the hotline, be it a story demo or maybe you were just reacting to one of the stories or something you had on the podcast. I appreciate you so, so much. You are really such a glue in this community. Here's to a hundred more episodes. Yes. <laughs> in two years, let's do this again. <laughs> um, here's to hundreds more stories. Um, here's to hundreds more tours. I really want to get out there in my country, Kenya, and across this continent, just recording African stories and adding more African voices to our global narrative and letting Africans connect with each other and learn about each other through this podcast. Here's to a hundred more random convos. I have not forgotten about them. <laughs> more will be coming your way on this podcast. And here's to more people finding their home right here on Legally Clueless. We started this journey with just a dream. I have a dream. A dream to bring inspiring stories from across Africa to life. As we mark our milestone with our 100 episodes, we look back at the laughter. Do you have $500? I think you need to rethink your strategy accordingly, you know. The fun. This man has started to read <laughs> off of a blank piece of paper. The tears. I can't wait to get a job to be happy. But most importantly, the inspiring and uplifting stories. People not liking you, it's not on you. My first casting was for Christian Dior. From Legally Clueless, we want to say thank you for sharing and thank you for listening. A hundred episodes of Legally Clueless.